Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. You're in the transporter room. Oh, my goodness, Carly. It looks like baseball is doomed. The Marlins, they, half their team is in quarantine. It's the thing that, you know my stance on it. They should, I do. They should never. I mean, a lot of these sports leagues are trying to have a season, but to be honest, it this just isn't the year for it. But baseball had a plan. And oh, that not a plan, good plan. <laughs> and that plan um, I'll tell you what, that plan almost worked except for one little problem. You have a you have a franchise in Florida. Yeah, because and, Florida is the uh, second worst case for uh, coronavirus right now in the country. And here's the other thing. You know, the WNBA managed to get off without much of a hilt. I mean, I thought they did a great job and playing in that one centralized location, just like the NBA, just like the NHL starting Tuesday. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff where if you stay in one place and keep everybody confined, this might work. But traveling all over the country, the Mets getting on a, a bus to Boston to get to uh, the Red Sox. I don't know. It's crazy. And see, that's the thing that I was surprised. I thought baseball would have like some type of arrangement by where they could keep teams relatively confined. But when they, but when I realized that they were coming within five days left and still hadn't finalized the plan, and you had one team that didn't even have a place to play, that told me, oh, this is just a petri dish waiting to happen. And sure enough, it happened. Now, the reason why basketball, I think, has a shot is they planned. They said, yeah. look, we got to keep you in one place. One, we got to keep you in one place. Two, we're not going to get overly ambitious. I mean, we're, I, I'm not sure so much about the NBA. They already had a problem with a couple of players who actually left the bubble. Yeah. Had, I, and have, having little uh, parties and going to the, the strip clubs. And things like that. No, you can't be doing that. <laughs> I'm surprised there's a strip club even open in florida right now oh it's florida come on <laughs> yeah but i mean i don't think even florida is not that selfish and stupid but apparently <laughs> but apparently you know they you know what they're calling they're naming florida's go governor ron death santis right now <laughs> that's very funny now you also wrote this week in out sports about world rugby following up on a story you wrote last week about this proposed ban now what are people telling you about world rugby and their ban on transgender women that's been proposed well one there's some hopeful signs that there that there could that there's going to be some leverage that's going to be put on world rugby to rethink a possible ban i had a chance i mean one of the people i talked to in fact talked to her the day after the news came out was carolyn late carolyn late australian australian former rugby union and rugby league player who played at the highest levels of rugby union before her transition and then transitioned, went back to rugby, played 11 more years, played 11 more years. And what she had to say was very extensive. I said, there was one thing she said, I think people really need to hear where, where she said, it just goes to show the steps the patriarchy has taken to exclude any former or former trans rugby playing women in their working group. They're happy for us to be injured playing against cisgender men and the same for trans men against cis men. So you know whose welfare is important in all of this. It's not trans people. And we're once again, collateral damage in our lives don't matter. That's a very serious statement. And I don't think anyone can disagree with her on that. I can and give also, you proof. I can give you proof before you move on. We've got was five transgender women murdered in the last two months. And we're approaching 
we're past the halfway mark of 2019, but we're approaching the number of people who are trans-identified or non-binary killed in all of 2019, and it's not yet even August. Well, it's getting ridiculous. And Five black uh, transgender women, Brayla Stone, Mercy Mack, Shaki Peters, Drea McCarty, Bree Black, down dead in four states. And the worst thing is the most recent one, the one in the Bronx, the, the yes. lady in the Bronx. And that's six and another one in New York City. And, right. and I'm going to and as a person who is a who is a news producer in that town, I'm pretty sure that if you were running that news desk at that moment and you had a reporter which went on air and you had news editors which dead named a person on a live shot. Yeah, that's what they do. They get the number name from the police and they. I get the name from the police and they just go with it because they don't check with the community. They don't check with the family. They don't check with the people who would know better. And a lot of these folks, they can't afford to get their names changed. That's a, you know, it's a legal loophole. It costs a lot of money to go through that the courts and everything else. You know, I was there with you when you changed your name. Yeah. And that, and that wasn't cheap. No. Um, but the whole thing is whether it's on the street, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in sports, it goes back to what what um, it goes back to what Caroline Laid is saying is that you know whose lives matter and it isn't us. And <laughs> but there's also signs going back to the rugby story. There's also signs that there's a lot of people in the highest echelons of the of the individual national governing bodies who are saying let's rethink this. Um, there have been shows of support from international gay rugby. A lot, mo all their member clubs tweeting out support saying we don't agree with this. We we don't agree with the methodology. We think something's amiss here. Rugby is an inclusive sport. The head of of new of rugby New Zealand. Now New Zealand rugby. If you're talking about a nation that where rugby is religion, it's New Zealand. I mean, the, this is the home of the All Blacks, of the Black Ferns, world champions in the sport of rugby live in live on that island. Mm -hmm. And though, and they were saying we're and basically the the COO of of New Zealand rugby said uh, we have to look at how we make this thing inclusive, and we don't agree with what World Rugby is doing. A similar statement came out from Rugby Australia. Well, what about Kirsty? We talked to Kirsty on a previous episode. What did she oh, say? Oh, Kirsty Miller is Kirsty is just livid, right? Kirsty went at it with Tommy Lundberg on Twitter last week. Tommy Lundberg, head of the Karolinska Institute, who came, whose study, which they admit was flawed when discussing trans athletes, that was the study that World Rugby used. If you're hearing all the stuff like a certain person from the sports science website, uh, Ross Tucker, who's talking about the science, no, the science was one study, and that study, the people who ran that study admit it. When you're talking about trans athletes, these numbers don't paint an accurate picture. They admitted to this, but World Rugby went this and went as far as saying there's a 20 to 30 percent greater risk if a cisgender woman is tackled by a transgender woman in a rugby match. Now, I actually went to I actually tweeted Ross and tweeted a number of these people and asked, where did that number come from? Did that number come from come from data that came from rugby games? Notice they didn't answer. No, they did not. And also the other thing is they've been saying uh, the, the advocates of the ban, the proponents have been saying, well, we had people in there advocating for trans people. It wasn't all just fair play for women, but they didn't have one, not one trans woman athlete. They didn't have they one. They had one in the who? room. 
They Who? had Joanna. They had Joanna Harper in the room. Oh uh, but... no! But here's my thing. I agree with Caroline late. You need somebody actually played this sport. You needed people that actually played the sport in a the trans room. woman rugby players. What you need? Yes, you need they Miller. had they had one trans rugby player in the room. Verity Smith, a trans man, and Verity is, and I have a feeling that right now Verity is saying, "Wait a minute, I got Verity." In a lot of ways, I can tell. I mean, I can tell by some of Verity's tweets they're very upset at the way it went down because they they saw they saw the misogyny and transphobia work hand in hand. And I think a lot and that's what this is really about. I tell people often that that the people that are for all this anti all this transphobia when it comes to sports, they believe two things. One, trans women are not women, and number two, cisgender women suck at sports. Both it's of misogyny. them are false, but that's what they it's believe. Misogyny. Yes. It's terrible. It is, it is horrible, but my thing is you have people you could talk to. You could have called a Kirstie Miller. You could have certainly called a Ka- Caroline Lake can give you the ins and the outs because and jo- Joanna Harper's from- a runner, so she's not really relatable. I mean, no, she's uh, studying this, but I, 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 I've had discussions with her where I'm not so sure she's in favor of inclusion well, in some cases. So well, here's my thing about Joanna Harper. I'm not. I'm not going to castigate her, but I'm not going to call her exactly my friend either, because it seems like whenever trans, whenever the transphobes want to make a point, they bring her out. Yeah. And I, and I, and that <sighs> is a, that's a troubling issue to me. And what about, what about Idaho? Talk to me about what's going on there. Well, Idaho, they had their, they had the, they had the, um, the pre motion, the pre-trial motions hearing. The so this is the other hearing. battlefront where we're waging. Yes. We're, we're waging battles on two continents right now, <laughs> and and right now all the it really comes down to three things. Number number one, the first thing that they're looking at, obviously, Roger Black and his. Uh, obviously, the people from the ADF want to try to get a dismissal. They want to get a dismissal. They're saying that no. And they're really and they're really stretching the dismissal. They're saying that Title Seven, that the Title Seven Supreme Court ruling has nothing to do with Title Nine, even though the language is the, is virtually identical. And they're saying this should be thrown out on cause. Never mind all the regulatory things that are already in front. The there's all there's also the other there's also another motion as far as who as can the two cisgender athletes from Idaho State be can allowed to see yeah. can they join the lawsuit on the side of defending it yeah there's that issue yeah. and i think that they're, they're going to be allowed to do it i think it's going to go through like that and then the other one is a motion for an injunction against enforcement until the entire legal process plays out to me that's the most important one because if there's an injunction against enforcement if they're saying this law cannot go into effect until we hash this out in court, that means this this could take months. Mm-hmm. This could take a few months. During that time, you have already had a, had a cross-country season. Lindsay Haycox could, could run for Boise State. And she won't because the law now says that trans people cannot compete. Yes. Even though the, the NCAA, by their regulations, say that she say that she can compete she is eligible mm-hmm. she will be, she will reach the one year threshold by by the start of the se- by before even practice is start 
she's going to reach the one the one year threshold for for HRT next month. Oh, According God. to her, I mean, so this is going to be done. But there's also another wrinkle in this. What's that? Assume there's also another wrinkle that that has to be discussed. Um, two, uh, one state has said that one state, because of that law, did similar to what Connecticut did when North Carolina passed their law, the HB the HB two law, and they basically said we're nobody from Nobody who works for the state of California can go to goes to Idaho on official business. Hmm. And that includes football coaches at California universities. Wow. Let's set coordinates for Connecticut where, you know, you and I live in Connecticut and just down the road, as you can see on the, uh, on the uh, view screen is Susan Bigelow. She's an opinion writer for ConnecticutNewsJunkie.com. She is a librarian in the fine town of Enfield, Connecticut. And she has dabbled in the fine art of science fiction. Shall we beam her up, Carly? Beam her up. Welcome, Susan Bigelow. Thanks for having me on. Hey, we're in the transporter room. I hear... Brass Bonanza playing in the background. I wonder why that would be. Are you a Whalers fan, Susan? <laughs> yes, I am a Whalers fan. Um, Whalers fan from a long time back. Uh, I'm one of those people who is sort of a, a diehard, where I'm sitting around thinking, yeah, and someday, someday they'll come back. Gone you, are you standing? Even are you standing in Hartford been. with your? Are you standing with Hartford with your jersey and your flag, and you're waiting for them the the bus to pull back up? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm right right outside the Civic Center. Um, sorry, the XL Center. Yeah, uh, the just XL waiting Center. for them to come yeah. back. But no, I know. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, long yeah. gone. I know uh, that although, they're not. Isn't there? Isn't there? A, isn't there a? Um, isn't there a minor league or eight NHL team that calls themselves the Whale? Uh, that used to be the Hartford Wolfpack changed their name very, very briefly to the Connecticut Whale um, and then changed it back because apparently yeah. it wasn't going so well. <laughs> I blinked uh, and I missed it. <laughs> and I know. Uh, well, everybody wanted them to call themselves the Hartford Whalers, and they decided not to do that because they were exploring their own brand identity, which turned out to be dumb. And so they didn't do that anymore. There was a, an even more minor league team in Danbury that called itself the Whalers and did the whole brass bonanza thing, and it was cool. Um, but you know, in the in the way that Danbury hockey happens, um, something happened to them. Like at, at least it wasn't a, some sort of weird garbage mafia thing like the Danbury Trashers was, and that is real. It was a garbage mafia thing uh, <laughs> that drove them out, um, and they were known for having some. They were they were like the Charlestown Chiefs in a lot of ways, uh, both fans and players. That that is a pretty wild hockey league, and they're they're no longer there. There's, I don't know if there's a team there now, uh, but um, they're not not the Whalers. So there is there is no Whalers in Connecticut anymore. But there is a whale again, and I went to their games. the The pro women's hockey team is in Danbury now. Yes. Oh, they're in Danbury now. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Woo. But That's there cool. is I keep those games. But there is a there's a Whalers connection 
in in there was one thing there was a whalers connection ron francis is the gm of the new seattle franchise oh you mean yes the the, the uh kraken release the kraken, kraken. Yep. <laughs> wow that is a that is a great name isn't it great uh, i think I, it's great I, i'm really into their logo um I think that's really cool. I like it way better than I like Las Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, I think it's going to be really cool to see them play. And who's the team that you do watch up in Massachusetts? Well, uh, I do not follow the NHL anymore for, for being very bitter reasons. Uh, so what I uh, we are fans of the AHL, American Hockey League. They're next level down from the NHL. We follow the Springfield Thunderbirds. Um, they are... But they, they were, um, let's see, they were the Portland Pirates, but they were bought by Springfield folks uh, back in 2016 and brought to Springfield after the Springfield Falcons, the last team that was there, were purchased by their parent team in Arizona and moved to Tucson, uh, hockey hotbed uh, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> um, and so now we follow them. Uh, yes. No, nothing like hockey in Arizona um, to really get you going. You but, are a yes, Trevor, so are treasure trove that, of hockey uh, knowledge. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm, glad I'm, like... I'm, I'm a gigantic hockey nerd. Uh, I know all kinds of so, so sort of odd hockey facts. Um, a lot of them from the 90s, but also I know a lot of hockey facts about minor league hockey players from now. And that's that's it's a unique niche, but it is mine. <laughs> I think it seems appropriate for a librarian to have lots of little interesting details about a certain thing. Oh, yes. No, that's what we do. <laughs> Carly, go ahead. No, I was just, well, first off, mentioning the Charlestown Chiefs, that's a big deal. I mean, it was a yes. road trip, so we brought our cars. And I'm with you on the NHL because I'm bitter because the NHL took my team that I rooted for growing up away from me, not once, but twice. So I can, I can completely relate there. Now, as far as, as far as the work you do for news junkie, what's some of the stuff you've been covering lately? Mostly it has been uh, either coronavirus. Um, I keep our maps up to date. I keep, I write a weekly prevalence map piece um, analyzing what like the last weekly numbers have been where Connecticut is trending. Uh, Connecticut is trending, well, we're sort of in a holding pattern right now. Our numbers are very good here, but they are also, um, they're not really getting better and they're not really getting worse. That's where we're at. Uh, I think because, just because of what's going on in the rest of the country, we really can't avoid having some, um, some cases coming in from the outside. It's very hard to get rid of something when we don't have a wall around the state where we can stop people from coming in and coming out. Uh, the other stuff I've been writing about, um, the special session of the legislature, which is going on right now, uh, and the police accountability bill uh, that is being voted on. Um, I believe it's happening today. The Senate's going to take that up. Um, which is Tuesday as we record this, and this will be heard on Wednesday. Tuesday, the 28th. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> right. We, we so, sort of, we operate that, in, that, the, in a time zone. Had, <laughs> well, yeah. we're science fiction after all. Yes, it is science fiction. But um, I'm really pleased that the uh, legislature making some changes in the absentee voting. That's really good news. Yes, indeed. It's very good news. Um, but they are doing 
is for the primary, the governor had issued an executive order that allowed people to vote all absentee uh, for the primary, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Our primary is going to be very boring. Uh, it's just going to be the presidential preference primary, uh, which is happening two weeks before the actual Democratic convention. We, we kind of know who's going to win. Um, but we, there's also like a couple of little local primaries here and there, and everyone's going to be able to vote absentee for that. The legislature has now voted to allow that to happen for the general election as well, um, which means that you can request an absentee ballot. You don't have to have an excuse, which is that's the usual law that's actually in Connecticut's constitution. You have to have a valid excuse to have an absentee ballot to be able to vote by mail. Uh, Connecticut doesn't allow things like early voting. We don't allow sort of all vote by mail like some of the states out west do. So this is a big deal to allow us to do more of the voting by mail, um, especially as it does seem like we're really not going to be out of the pandemic by the time that the November election rolls around. So that's very good news for us. What is your thought in terms of the whole way that the mask debate has turned into uh, you are wearing a mask if you're progressive and you won't if you're conservative. What is that all about? I know Connecticut's uh, a blue state, but I've seen lots of Trump signs back in 2016, and I expect I'll see some more when November 3rd rolls around. Well, I mean, yes. First off, uh, <laughs> just let me, let me make my weary sigh, um, because, yeah, as soon as this started, and as, as soon as, like, back in April, the president of the United States was sort of saying grouchy things about masks, I thought, no, they're not really going to turn this, this, into a culture war issue. But, of course, they did. Um, and, yes, even in Connecticut, a blue state, we do have those ding-dongs in the cars who go around uh, shouting, liberate, and uh, <laughs> no more masks. No driving around the Capitol in, in their, their minivans and what have you. Um, so it's extremely frustrating because we know how to beat this pandemic. We know how to do it. If everybody had mask discipline, if we all actually wore them, um, if we all practice social distancing the way that we're supposed to do it, if we followed the rules in this country for a couple of weeks, we would have it under control and we would save the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And that I read that over. No, it can't be. And, and I read that Texas, since the governor ordered people to start wearing masks, has actually started to see a plateau in some cases. So either it's just President Trump saying this would all disappear, <laughs> or it's yeah. mask work. Masks work. What? Science actually takes, science works for goodness sake. It's surprise, <laughs> surprise. I'm a sort of a regular to CT News junkie, so I've seen a lot of your work. One of the um, columns I bookmarked was from June 23rd, where you talked about you want it, you want people to get back on the buses and the trains again, make them free. Do you, do you see that possibly happening once as this oh. crisis continues to abate here in Connecticut? So yes, uh, I hope that they do make uh, mass transit in Connecticut free. I think that that's a great idea. It's a great idea just because people are going to be strapped for cash when this is over. Uh, people are going to not have jobs. They're not going to have ways to get to where they need to go. Um, it's it's going to be pretty brutal. And we really do want people 
to stay, you know, we want to, we want to have people riding the buses, we want to have people riding the trains, staying off of the roads, um, not just because it helps with congestion, but also because it helps with pollution, and it also helps keep our cities less gridlocked. Um, there's a lot of great reasons for riding public transit, and I think that that making them free is a good way to keep, uh, to, to sort of bring people back in after this pandemic has caused a lot of people to really think twice about taking a bus or taking a train uh, with people who might be potentially infected. It's, it's kind of daunting to sit in a, a very enclosed space with other people where you don't know who might have the virus. Um, so I think that, that that'd be a great way to try and bring people back. And I, I hope that they do it. I don't have high hopes that they actually will just because the state, of course, is also going to be pretty strapped for cash. Uh, we're going to be facing, I'm sure, a pretty awful budget deficit in the next cycle. I'll tell you one thing for me, because there was something you said in that particular column which struck home to me is that notice how much different it was when there wasn't nearly as much traffic. I'll tell you, for me, at first it was eerie because I remember like a few weeks into the pandemic, I went out, it was on a Sunday morning to ride my bike. And Sunday mornings are usually pretty much today. That morning, it was like a, it was like an episode of The Walking Dead. It was eerie. Hmm. Nothing. Without the zombies. Moved. Without the yeah, zombies. Yeah, without the zombies. <laughs> without the zombies yes. I almost thought that zombies were going to just start kind of like amble along, along the streets of West Hartford <laughs> because it was just so empty. But I'll tell you one thing. It was things seemed a lot calmer. And in a sense, it was like there wasn't so much. There was a there's a lot of reflection time. Yeah, we talk about isolation a great deal. And there's a lot of that. But for me, at one level, as much as there's been isolation, it's been frustrating. It's also been an opportunity for self-reflection. I'm just wondering, Susan, for you, what has this, this time, this period been like for you? Has it been different? Has it not been different? How's it been? Well, of course, it's been different. Um, I actually changed day jobs during this. So I went from one library to another. Uh, so I, I commute down to Hartford three days a week because I'm not doing the full time down there. Um, and of course, just trying to drive into Hartford, speaking of no traffic, just driving through the I-91, I-84 interchange without there being a gigantic traffic jam at 8.30 oh, in the morning. I know that commute, Remarkable. boy. Yes. Yeah. This is like for everybody in Connecticut, everyone in Connecticut's like, oh, wow, that sounds so nice. And it is. <laughs> it's great. Um, I have actually spent a lot of this time... Um, it's been good to be home um, as much as I have been. It's really wonderful to just be at home. Um, I've actually really enjoyed that. Uh, my wife and I are spending much more time together, which is great. I really like that. Um, I'm getting to spend more time with the cats. I have Aww. a lot of cats. I mean, a lot of cats, like an embarrassing number of cats. Um, but yes, I get to spend more time with the cats, and that's also great. Um, the, the isolation part, doesn't bother me nearly as much, um, but it's, you know, it's, it is a little weird to be away from, from people, but, you know, just being able to be home and being able to be, you know, I, I do agree that it, it is a time for reflection and thinking. Um, for me, it's also been a time of sort of intense work uh, as I've been trying to keep, um, keep ahead of 
coronavirus information, trying to write, uh, trying to get in, into a new job, all this stuff. Uh, so different time, but also hectic time. Why don't you tell us what a librarian does during the pandemic? Well, uh, there's a lot of remote requests. Patrons need information. Uh, we can get into them, but they obviously they cannot come in. So there's a lot of scanning of microfilm and uh, looking up things in books and sending it off to them, uh, answering questions through the mail, that kind of thing. Um, you know, call, calling people up, uh, taking calls at the desk. Then, of course, there's projects to do. There's always projects. Every single library has them. Uh, gigantic organization projects, cataloging, um, rearranging, shuffling, all that good stuff. So that's what we're doing. If you think your librarians are doing nothing during the pandemic because they're just sitting in an empty building, having coffee or whatever. Um, no, there's still coffee, but we are doing lots and lots and lots of stuff. So your librarians in your towns are keeping very busy. Uh, and of course, the one thing everybody is doing in every library is trying to get ready for patrons to come back. And that's going to be that's going to be tough um, for when that actually does happen. Uh, it's not going to be the same as it was before. It, it cannot be because we cannot have giant crushes of people coming into the library. That puts everybody at risk. So it's going to be limited for a little while. I think in most libraries, um, you'll be able to go in. Maybe you need to make an appointment. Maybe a certain number of people can be in there at the same time. Um, something like that. It's not going to be the same for a while, but we'll get back into it. Hopefully soon. Susan, in your mind, what is the future of the public library in this country? I think the future is going to be very much like the present. Um, right now, libraries serve an extremely important purpose, uh, not just for you know, research, uh, but also as a, as a community hub. Libraries as spaces have become more and more important, especially as we sort of lose community spaces um, and things that used to be community spaces sort of disappear. Uh, libraries are one of the last places that people can, can go. Um, so the library does serve that function. It serves a function for kids to go to get their homework done. Uh, it serves as a function for, you know, older folks to come during the day and, uh, and read and interact with each other. Um, it's, it's going to be that. And I think it's going to be more as we get into the future. The library, of course, is always going to be more online. Um, and that's something that's increased as long as my career has gone on. I used to be an academic librarian used to work at colleges, uh, and most of our collections there would be online material. So the library exists as a physical space, and that's really important. That physical space is very important, but it also exists as a very large virtual space. So I think we'll see that virtual space growing still, and we'll see that physical space be more and more important to communities that, that need something like it. Before there was an internet, I used to go to the uh, library in a town Next to mine, I'd bike, I'd bike there so I could read books like Dear God, It's Me, Margaret, and to read up about, you know, gender and everything else I could get my hands on to try and understand why I felt like a girl, but I was living as a boy. Now we have the internet, but... Is Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, like a universal trans girl experience? Did we I think all so. read this? Yeah, pretty much. We all read this. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think we all did. And like, and you know, yeah, you know it's funny. It's over it's, and over again. <laughs> it's it's it boggles my mind that there are still libraries in this country 
that won't let books by Jazz Jennings or other transgender stories be on the shelves. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about that as a librarian, as a trans woman. Usually it's not because, usually it's not because librarians make that decision. Yeah, usually it's not because librarians make that decision. It's the communities in which these libraries are, uh, there's always these awful political pressures that are on, especially public librarians. Um, of course, these books should be on the shelves because there's always going to be kids and not just kids, but everybody going into the library, trying to find information about themselves and who they are. And the libraries, that's one of the first places people go, you know, for someone to sort of wander around the shelves, wander into like the LGBT section and try to understand themselves, just reading through, flipping through the books there. I think a lot of, a lot of queer folks have had that experience and that's something that needs to be allowed to continue. We cannot let um, the sort of awful social politics of this country get in the way of people actually being able to access the information that they really, really need to understand themselves. So I'm, I'm pretty angry <laughs> that, that there are still places that are, are keeping these books off the shelves. Um, and I, I hope that they'll be allowed on the shelves soon. We gotta take a little break. We'll be right back with Susan Bigelow in the Transporter Room. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. Carly Webb and Don Ennis, along with Susan Bigelow, sci-fi author and news hound for ctnewsjunkie.com. And I must say, before I even ask this next question, first, an appreciation, Susan, namely for a character, a character named Reina Fernandez Silva. In oh, many right. ways, that character from your novel series, Extra Humans, that, char that character uh, gave me so much insight into my own process, my own transition. So just a little appreciation there. And, you're, and you were oh, talking you. about just the social pressure against information being out there. And we're seeing some of that pressure here in Connecticut. As you know, Connecticut in some ways has led the way in regards to inclusion in this state, being inclusion in public accommodations, inclusion in the workplace, and inclusion in our schools. What's your thoughts on this lawsuit against Connecticut schools right now in regards to transgender inclusion in school activities and athletics? Oh, yes. Well, first off, thank you for mentioning, uh, thank you for mentioning Rena. Um, I'm so glad that, that, that she's been helpful. Um, she was actually someone that I wrote when I was going through my own transition. Um, so she helped me as well. Uh, but yay, I'm so glad that that, uh, that that was, that that was there for you. Um, yes, the lawsuit going on right now, uh, which is all about track and field. Um, it's about uh, two transgender runners at the, at the, are at the heart of it uh, who were doing awful things like winning races um, and the uh, the mother of of these girls in Glastonbury and uh, several others got together filed this huge lawsuit uh, trying to ban uh, trans girls from competing against cis girls and this is this is something that has it has sort of deeper roots. This particular uh, mother in Glastonbury, uh, it's just come up before in anti-trans stuff. Um, 
And the whole idea is that she feels like it's unfair because her daughter is getting denied opportunities to like get college scholarships, um, to win races, uh, because they have the, the trans girls have some sort of extra advantage uh, over her. Um, which, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. First off, this is not necessarily going to be the truth that, oh, somebody who has, um, somebody who is assigned male at birth is automatically going to be better at sports. That's, that's a really misogynist thing to say, um, I feel like. And it's not always true either. Uh, because our bodies are also different. Our biology is also different. What makes someone a good athlete or not doesn't have to do with chromosomes and hormones all the time. Um, It has to do with all kinds of different things. And also uh, the fact that these girls didn't always win the races that they were in suggests that, well, maybe that's not always the case. But so anyway, they're they're trying to get Connecticut to – to ban trans athletes uh, from being from playing in high school sports. Uh, it's a pretty ridiculous thing, um, but it got caught up in the culture wars as well. It actually was briefly nationally in the culture wars. Um, the state Republican Party was going to honor these girls at their big dinner that they have uh, every year, their Prescott Bush oh, dinner. Yeah. yeah, we've been talking about it. Yeah, and, we've been and, discussing that one. Yeah, and thank you for shouting out about the fact that trans athletes don't always win. After the lawsuit was filed, one of the uh, plaintiffs, Chelsea Mitchell from Canton, Connecticut, beat Terry Miller of Bloomfield at least twice in nine days. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? Wait a minute. That's yeah. not how that's supposed to go. Mm, something, something, really, something wrong there. But, you know, mm. I, I've, been, I've been after the governor since he said that, oh, we don't want to lose our federal funding. I've been after him since May 29th, trying to get a statement of support the attorney general has come out very strong. He's been a strong proponent and advocate for LGBT and transgender rights since even before he was elected, when he was in the legislature. But I can't get the governor on the record. I just can't. And I'm begging them to please put out a, a notice so all these families of these trans kids know that the governor's got your back. Won't do it. Yeah. Yeah, so Max Reese, governor's uh, communications guy, if you're listening, Please forward our, our, our information to him. The yeah, I've, you've, you've got my number. I've called you. I've texted you. I've messaged you. I've voicemailed you. I've emailed you. Max, we're well, waiting. Well, one thing I can, well, one <laughs> thing I can tell you is what? At, the le- at the levels of school boards and town councils and cities, there is a movement toward, there is a movement within, within the cities, especially some of our largest cities in this state, to put forth resolutions saying we're going to back our kids. Now talk about that because you were a part of the panel in the uh, Fairfield County area, were you not? Yeah, I was. I was a part of a panel that that is um, working with the Stanford Board of Representatives right now towards a resolution that was sponsored by one of the representatives who's on, one of only two trans, who's only one of two trans elected officials in the state, towards a resolution saying that if Betsy DeVos is going to come and attack our children. We'll see you in court. We will fight you tooth and nail. And that's something that that has already that's going through the process there. From there, supporters are looking to go for the pro go move this process to other cities. Right now, it's still in the infant stages. It's still going through the machinery in Stanford right now. But 
I was proud to work with Representative Raven Mathurin on that. And I hope that it does spread like wildfire because we need to let Governor Lamont know, let the attorney, let Attorney General Tong know, let the state legislature know that we in Connecticut have set a standard for inclusion. We've set a standard for human rights and we've set a standard that is a model for the nation. And I yeah. want Connecticut to continue leading the way. That's why we want them standing standing for our state, especially standing for our kids, because people have to understand what's at stake here. Betsy DeVos well, is talking about threatening federal funding. And she can't right do now, that, though. She can't do that. She can't do that technically, but but in the regular in the way that our in the way that our government and the way our regulatory system works, it's something they can put out there and get public opinion moving towards that end. And yeah. right now, we can't afford that. Especially no, we can't. when we're no, trying not, to start not during a pandemic. No, my God, no. Yeah, and that's one thing I do want to ask Susan about because you've done a lot of work on Corona on, on with a, you've done a lot of reporting on this from the beginning of this pandemic. Um, what are you hearing on the ground in regards to to school starting? Because I've heard a lot of different plans, but still, we're what three weeks away from the start of school, and what's the plan? Is there a plan? Well, <laughs> uh, there's there's. Well, of course, it's not actually a plan. Um, really, it's kind of being left up to the, up to the districts right now. That's, that's not great. Um, but it, it seems like everybody's moving more and more towards, all right, we're not going to have in-person school in the fall. That's where I think that this is going. And uh, something that I uh, – one reason why I think this is because today, uh, again, we're Tuesday, uh, the governor announced a program um, – that was going to uh, try to bridge the gap for a lot of students who don't have access to computers and the internet at home. And that suggests to me that they're really trying to plan for more online learning once the fall comes. And if you listen to, to teachers, and I used to be a high school teacher a long time ago, so it's really important to listen to teachers in these cases when they say, our school buildings are not, we are not set up to do social distancing. We are not set up for this at all. It's just not the way our buildings work. It's going to be really hard to do this. I think we really need to listen to them when they say that because they know that it's not possible. So I really do think I would be shocked if come the end of August we have in-person classes. I just don't see it coming. My school district here in West Hartford has actually delayed school until after Labor Day. In all our 16 years living here, only New Yorkers started school after Labor Day. We always went to school in August. And the fact that my kid is not going to be starting high school until September 9th, that's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it's better because it gives them more time to figure out whether it's safe. Right. And I do think that things are not going to get better. I, I think we're going to be stuck in this holding pattern here for a while. It's possible that we may th see things, even in the Northeast, we may see things get worse uh, just because of what's going on in the rest of the country. Uh, so I don't see us having a kind of situation where we're going to feel safe. Having well, there's, there's no, there's no way. Yeah. There's no way we're going to keep people out. I mean, I know there's a quarantine rule of so many States and I had a Washington DC today and other places. But it's not like there's a state trooper standing at the at the border with a, a license plate reader and saying, "Whoa, stop!" <laughs> right? No. So no, there's not. 
So even yeah, though no, that, that's what Maine's doing, though. Well, it's Maine. Oh, Maine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this on a national. I know you're Connecticut news junkie, but let's just go national for a second because Connecticut's part of the nation. It is. I am not as much afraid as I was in 2016 that when, you know, the numbers showed Hillary way ahead and, and it turned out the polls were all wrong and Trump worked the Electoral College. I'm not so much worried that Biden won't win. I'm more worried that Trump won't leave. And I think that's a very common fear among progressives yeah. right now. What's your take on that whole idea that he'll just say, ah, doesn't count? <laughs> I think the worry here um, isn't that he won't leave because his term does expire on January 20th. He's done. And then they can march him out of the White House because he's no longer allowed to be in there. Um, that's, you know, uh, that's something Joe Biden has said a bunch, like, look, you know, we can, we can take people out for trespassing if we need to. Uh, that's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about him and his allies in, in the right-wing media, especially the sort of bonkers right-wing media like One American News Network, et cetera, really just pumping up the culture war in a huge, awful way um, to try and dispute this election. Now, there are lots of bad actors around the world, including in Russia and including in China. Uh, we, are, we do have some evidence that there has been already at least some, you know, interference and some uh, kind of issues with, the, with them, uh, you know, putting Twitter bots up and sending propaganda, that kind of thing, uh, to try and make our election a little more confusing and to try and lead people to have less faith in it. I worry that that's where we're going, that there will be sort of this blizzard of stuff coming from inside the country and outside the country that causes a lot of people to lose faith in the result of the election and to say that the election was not valid. When that happens, this is a crisis moment for democracy in this country. Um, and that's where I'm worried that we're going, that, that President Trump, it his unwillingness to cede power in uh, his unwillingness to do what Barack Obama did and peacefully transfer power to the opposite party uh, will cause a major crisis um, and a major breakdown in public trust in democratic institutions, the small d democratic institutions. That is a huge danger. And that's, that's what I'm worried about. And right now, I don't see our institutions, at least, having a plan to combat that. So it's, again, it's something that we're just going to have to fight out in the media, I think, if, if that does take place. The way to, to sort of defeat that, I think, is a, a Biden landslide. Um, if, there's, if it's close, we're in trouble. If it's not close and Biden is the runaway winner, um, then I think that that is a lot less effective of a tactic. But again, we can't predict what the president is going to do, uh, we can just worry about it. One thing you've also been on the front lines of covering the other, more recently covering the other major story, which is the wave of protest. How do you think yep. that will play into the, into the election process? Because I'll be the first to admit I'm what, well, what you're at one level, what you're talking about is the crisis in democracy. Given that answer that question in the framework of, 
a person, say, like myself, being African-American and being trans in this country and having no faith in those institutions to begin with? No, that's a really good point. Um, and that, that is a really important context. Um, yeah, I think, I do think that, that the vice presidential selection, I hope that, um, that Biden does pick a woman of color. I think that that's a, that'd be really important to do just to, just for inclusivity's sake, um, but also because there are some really great women of color out there who would be fantastic vice presidential candidates. Uh, but yeah, I think that that's, a, that's the other crisis in democracy in this country um, is just, and I think that for white people, it has been a realization, a sort of coming, uh, a sort of awakening a little bit, which has been surprising because it's been very difficult to wake white people up on this stuff. Um, and I, I do think that there's at least some realization that for, uh, for black people, especially in this country, the rules are so different. But as for the protests themselves, I am, I am somewhat worried that the right-wing media is going to try to use them um, in a way that, that provokes and fans the flames of that, that sort of white supremacist racism uh, that we see too much. Um, but again, I don't see it actually working right now because they're trying. Uh, they're trying to paint this as sort of this awful, lawless, scary crisis. Um, and it's, it's not actually working for them. So I think that they're going to try and ramp that up. Um, but also, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as effective as it has been in the past. I do think we're, we're at something of a political turning point, at least on some of these issues. And the reason why I think that is just I'm looking at the police accountability bill that's been uh, in the Connecticut legislature and actually taking something like qualified immunity away from the police that's a major step forward um, in trying to limit police abuses. And I'm hoping that the rest of the country is also working on things like this and that we're going to see uh, at least somewhat of a curve of, of police power, especially uh, when regards, in regards to uh, people of color. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. It turns out that Watchmen and The Mandalorian were big winners at the Emmys. Star Trek Picard, not so much. What's your science fiction thing? I know you have been writing science fiction. I was just wondering if you are a fan of any of the science fiction that's been in the streaming outfits. What do you What do you like? Oh God, I like a lot of stuff. Um, <clears throat> I, I've watched. And is your wife a fan movies. too? I have to ask. Is your yep. wife a fan too? Oh, good. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we watch tons of Star Trek. Um, I'm really looking forward to Lower Decks. Um, oh, yes. Yes, I, I think that's going to be really good. I've li I liked the trailer. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, as you know, I loved the Lower Decks episode of Next Generation. When that, that was like 20 years ago. Um, I thought that was fantastic. I like seeing Starfleet from the point of view of like the lowly ensign on Deck 50. That's great. I like that. Um, I, I absolutely love The Mandalorian. I, I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan as well. I'm actually working my way through Clone Wars, which is a series I actually didn't watch when it first came out um, for all kinds of reasons. But I'm working my way through it now. I'm looking forward to that last season that I haven't watched yet. Disney Plus, I have watched tons and tons of Star Wars stuff on there. Um, I'm not surprised that The Mandalorian has, has been recognized. 
that that was a great series. I'm really looking forward to the next season of that, especially because the character of Ahsoka Tano is going to be in it, who I absolutely love, um, who was in Rebels and was in Clone Wars. Um, that's great. I cannot wait to see her. Uh, so that's that's where I'm at science fiction wise right now. Uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, that's my big deal. Susan, I'm wondering of the works that you've done, what are what are some works that you'd love to see adapted to the to the small screen or even the big screen? Of the stuff that I've written? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, I would I would love to see the Extra Human series. I think it'd be a pretty cool movie. Uh, back actually at the very beginning of my writing career, when I released the first book in that series, Broken, there was actually like a a little tiny bit of interest from like a random Hollywood production company about it. And I got all these, these images in my head of, oh, they're going to make a movie about it. Ooh, ooh, that's going to be so cool. Uh, of course, it, it never happened, but I would love to see that. I mean, who doesn't love superheroes? The, the point of this particular uh, series is superheroes fighting fascism in the future. And hey, I think a lot of people could go for that. Um, so yes, if you're out there, Hollywood Studios, uh, give me a call, please. And Please also have the dump truck of money to back up to my door uh, because that would be really very good. Thank you. I want to conclude with a question about something that I always say is like the fifth or sixth most interesting thing about me being trans. Tell Tell me what message you can share with our listeners about being trans and about being married and about succeeding in your transition just by being what message do you want to leave for our folks who are listening because either they're in the closet or they want to know more about what it's like to be trans? There is life after transition. um, And there's a lot of life after transition. We focus so much on that transition process. um, And we don't follow necessarily what happens to folks after that process is done, but we're still here. Um, I think that's also the message I've been trying to send is that despite everything that's happened in the past four or five years, uh, we're still here and there are still trans people doing awesome things, even well past transition. So, you know, if you're looking at transition now, if you're, if you're going through it yourself, if you're thinking about it, know that on the other side, there is life and that life is good. I would hardly, I would hardly concur with that. Because I've seen, I've seen that other side. It's beautiful, and in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, you're. And again, thank you. Because in many ways, your writings helped get me there. I'm so glad. We're glad that you joined us. Thank you so much for beaming up. Let's set coordinates for Enfield and live long and prosper, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Well, I'm so glad Susan could join us. What do you have on tap for next week, Carly? Next week. We're going to bring in Alice Soper. Now, Alice Soper is a is a standout rugby player in New Zealand and has been a, a standout player for almost 20 years. He started playing at some of the highest levels of rugby at the age of 12, no less, coming up through the ranks. Now she is a she's a professional player, but more so she's been an outspoken advocate for women's rugby and most recently an outspoken advocate against World Rugby's probable ban on transgender participation in the sport uh recently the day after they that their their um 
their white paper on a possible ban was leaked to the Guardian, she she went on Radio New Zealand and basically said, "Our sports inclusive. We need to fight it. We need to fight this tooth and nail as a rugby community to have somebody of her stature who has spoken out as a television analyst and as a player, as a longtime professional player and rugby league player, rugby union player." To stand out, especially in a rugby mad country like New Zealand, that's a big deal. So I'm looking forward to what should be an interesting and an excellent interview next week. And not our first guest from Down Under, but we're really excited whenever we go international. So that's next Wednesday on the Transporter Room. And tomorrow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find Outsports Podcasts, check out LGBT in the Ring, a very special episode from our Brian Bell. Don't miss it. All right, Carly, all the best. All the best to you as well. And to everybody, please, please wear a mask. mask. Please. (laughs) 